The following is intended only for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the spine-tingling grand finale of our Halloween special on the Anthology of Horror podcast. As you well know, I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and today we're embarking on a journey into the seldom-spoken tales of Los Angeles, focusing on an intriguing figure, Tiburcio Vasquez, the notorious Los Angeles bandito. But our story doesn't stop there. As we dive into the world of Vasquez, we'll also uncover the ghost stories and legends that are intimately connected to his dark legacy. And here's the exciting part. Today marks the culmination of our Halloween special, but the surprises are not over yet. Keep checking back throughout the day because we have more tricks and more treats in store for you. The Anthology of Horror podcast Halloween special promises to be an eerie and captivating experience, so stay with us until the very end. Welcome to the grand finale, my children. Welcome. Since his creation in 1919 by pulp writer Johnson McCulley, the character Zorro has become internationally known as a benevolent outlaw thanks to his appearance in countless movies, books, and television shows. What is not well known is that one of the real-life inspirations for the character was a 19th century outlaw named Tiburcio Vasquez, who was hunted down and eventually captured in Los Angeles. At the time... Los Angeles was in the midst of evolving from a small Mexican village to an American city, and Vasquez served as a symbol of resistance to that change. Tiburcio Vasquez was a bandit who was active throughout California during the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, which is a pretty goddamn good run. Vasquez was born in 1835 in Monterey, California, in what was, at the time, Old Mexico, He became famous for committing numerous burglaries, cattle thefts, and highway robberies. He participated in several prison breaks. He was also implicated in several murders, though he personally denied ever killing anybody. However, Vasquez was no ordinary outlaw. He was a gentleman bandit, or so he considered himself to be. He was personable, charming, handsome, well-dressed, and well-educated. He was fluent in both Spanish and English. He was considered a ladies' man who loved to demonstrate his chivalry. Unfortunately, his penchant for sleeping with multiple women, some of whom were his friend's wives, made him quite a few enemies and would eventually lead to his downfall. Vasquez acknowledged much of his criminal activity, but claimed that his acts were justified 
because of the injustices perpetrated against the Californios, which uh, it's an old term for native-born Spanish-speaking Californians, in connection with the American takeover of California. His words. During the mid-19th century, Americans who had been flowing into the state in growing numbers were seen as unwanted invaders by much of the native Californio population, Americans, on the other hand, believed that the conquest of California was part of their manifest destiny. And in 1847, Americans took over California by force, under questionable authority at best. So now, under American control, many Californios lost portions of their land through legal and uh, illegal means. As Americans seized the state's political affairs, Californios also lost their political influence. Along with the loss of political and economic power, many Californios felt that they were mistreated and discriminated against by the newly arrived Americans. And so in the midst of this volatile climate, Vasquez portrayed himself as a defender of the Californio. Vasquez's criminal exploits earned him such a notorious reputation throughout the state that the governor of California put up a reward for his capture, $3,000 alive or $2,000 dead. The state legislature then set aside money to form a posse to capture the bandit, led by the state's foremost manhunter, Sheriff Harry Morse, and thus began the hunt for the great bandito, Tiburcio Vasquez. The hunt for Vasquez provides insight into L.A.'s transformation from a small Mexican village to an American city. As American posses chased Vasquez through Los Angeles, they also symbolically chased the spirit of the rebellious Californio who refused to submit to American control. In 1874, Vasquez was hiding out in the home of a man named Greek George, a former camel driver for the U.S. Army, which, I'm not making any jokes, but... Anyway... Greek George's house was located in a rural portion of Rancho La Brea and was an ideal hideout. It was surrounded on three sides by dense shrubbery standing five to seven feet high and looking south. Vasquez had a clear view across the plain that stretched towards Los Angeles, which was important because being the most hunted man in California did not stop Vasquez from continuing his criminal endeavors. Vasquez heard that a wealthy Italian sheep rancher named Alessandro Rapetto had sold his wool crop and had a lot of cash on hand, so he set out with his men towards Rapetto's house. On their way, Vasquez and his men camped out in one of the caves at Piedra Gorda, which means fat rock, and now, for you locals or people that have visited the L.A. area, is called Eagle Rock. Oh, and a fun fact, Alessandro Repetto's house is on South Garfield Avenue in Monterey Park. Repetto's house stood on a hilltop above a ranch where he raised sheep and goats. Vasquez entered Repetto's house by claiming that he was a sheep shearer, but Vasquez's fine clothes and uncalloused hands showed that he was no sheep shearer indeed. So Repetto called him out on his ruse, and Vasquez admitted that he was a robber. Vasquez demanded $10,000, and his men tied Repetto to a tree and threatened to hang him unless he came up with the money. Unfortunately for Vasquez, though, Repetto did not keep his money at home. Instead, he had it safely deposited at the Temple and Workman Bank in the heart of the commercial district in downtown Los Angeles. So now faced with this problem, they decided that Repetto would write a check 
and his nephew would go to the bank to retrieve the cash. When Repetto's nephew arrived at the bank, he was so nervous that the banker, Francis Temple, became suspicious and contacted the sheriff. Upon further questioning, the nephew broke down and tearfully revealed the whole story. The sheriff immediately started assembling a posse to capture Vasquez. At this point, the nephew became worried that the sheriff's involvement might result in his uncle's death. He managed to convince the banker to give him $500 in gold and returned to Repetto's house before the posse to give the money to Vasquez. When the sheriff's posse approached, Vasquez and his men mounted up and started racing north towards my hometown, present-day Pasadena. When the sheriff's posse was behind them, they traveled up the Arroyo Seco, which is a, a seasonal river and watershed. Then they went through Devil's Gate, which is a rock formation that looks like the devil's head, and escaped up into the mountains. Vasquez even managed to rob a few people near present-day Brookside Park, which is by the Rose Bowl for all of you sports nerds, during his escape. So now needing a place to stay, Vasquez, who enjoyed the support of many local Californios, traveled to the home of General Andres Pico, the old Californio soldier and hero of the Mexican-American War. Pico's house, which was next to Mission San Fernando, was one of the major social centers in the San Fernando Valley. Vasquez spent a few days at Pico's home while the posse that had been chasing him turned back to Los Angeles. Vasquez utilized multiple hideouts throughout California, including Vasquez Rock, in between Santa Clarita and the Antelope Valley. The manhunt for Vasquez started getting coverage in newspapers throughout California. The whites in Los Angeles started to fear that Vasquez might actually stage an attack on Los Angeles. A California state senator wrote the governor a letter stating, A large proportion of our people are Spanish, who are nearly all in sympathy with him. They furnish him all the information he requires, and they have such confidence in him as a leader because of his daring and successful operations that he could raise a body of two or three hundred men any time in any part of the state, and he could send his men into this part of the city and by a bold dash rob all of our banks and get away before a sufficient force of citizens could be gotten together to prevent it. While such fears were obviously overblown, they were not completely unwarranted, Vasquez later bragged to a reporter that given $60,000, he would be able to recruit enough arms and men to revolutionize Southern California. More realistically, Vasquez later admitted that he had conceived of a plan to rob one of the two banks in Los Angeles. While working on this plan, Vasquez was again holed up at Greg George's house. During this time, the manhunter hired by the state Sheriff Morse was relentlessly searching for Vasquez, but after six long weeks of hunting for Vasquez and ultimately failing to capture him, Sheriff Morse gave up and fucked off up north. So, he, like I said, he had a pretty good run, 30 years, damn near. But in the end, it was not a criminal act that led to Vasquez's capture. It was him sticking his dick in everything, his womanizing. Vasquez caused a scandal when he had a child with his niece, Felicita Vasquez. Felicita's mother was furious with Vasquez and made her feelings known to her extended family, which included a guy named Jose Jesus Lopez, who described Vasquez as a man of no principle at all. And Lopez's cousin, Cornelia Lopez, just so happened to be Greek George's wife. Lopez's sister, Modesta, 
with whom Vasquez also had a sexual relationship, became furious when she learned that Felicita had borne Vasquez's child. Her anger grew when newspapers reported that Vasquez had visited a known prostitute. It's not clear exactly who did it, but some member of the Lopez family notified the authorities that Vasquez was hiding out at Greek George's house. The tip eventually made its way to the Los Angeles County Sheriff, William Rowland. So, as you did in these times, Sheriff Rowland assembled a posse and arranged for them to meet at a corral located near Spring and Fifth Streets in downtown Los Angeles. At 2 a.m., the posse quietly headed out of town towards the home of Greek George. Sheriff Rowland stayed in Los Angeles so as not to arouse the suspicion of any Vasquez informants. The men approached Greek George's in the back of a wagon, which routinely traveled by the house so as not to alert the bandits. And just before they reached the house, they jumped out and laid themselves flat on the ground. When they approached the house on foot, they saw Vasquez sitting at a table being waited upon by a woman. When the woman noticed something outside, she tried to close the door, but one of the men shoved his gun against the door and forced it open. Vasquez immediately made a break for the window, but was shot in the left arm. Vasquez jumped through the window and made a run towards his horse. Another member of the posse fired, and Vasquez was struck by two buckshots, one lodged in the back of his head and the other in his right arm. When another member of the posse leveled his rifle directly at him, Vasquez threw up his hands and said, Don't shoot, I give up. The great bandit had finally been captured. While a wagon and mule were being procured to take the prisoner back to town, one of the posse members offered Vasquez a drink of whiskey from his flask. Vasquez accepted, saying, I like to drink with brave men, and you were all brave, such as myself. <laughs> so news of Vasquez's capture spread like wildfire, but, but by the time the lawmen and their prisoners got back to town and arrived at the jail, they were met with a large crowd of looky-loos. After Vasquez's wounds had been treated, one of the posse members produced another bottle of whiskey and offered him a drink. And yet again, Vasquez cheerfully accepted, and just to be a dumb shit, gave a toast to the President of the United States. The capture was covered in newspapers throughout the country. Crowds flocked to the jail to see the famous outlaw. Women lined up with bouquets of flowers and fawned over the bandit. Vasquez was polite and met with his visitors and freely discussed his criminal exploits but he denied ever killing anybody. While in custody, Vasquez also agreed to pose for a photographer. A playwright from the nearby Merced Theater quickly wrote a short play titled The Capture of Vasquez. Vasquez was flattered and agreed to lend the lead actors his clothes and allowed the actor to study his personality and voice so as to better impersonate him on stage. Some say that Vasquez even offered to join the cast and play himself in the play, but the sheriff refused to allow him out of his jail cell. 
When Vasquez had recovered sufficiently to travel, he was taken by train to San Pedro and then onto a boat headed to San Francisco. Vasquez was subsequently tried, convicted of murder, and sentenced to death. His last word before he was hanged was pronto. Vasquez's ghost is seen at the old Monterey jail where he was held while awaiting his trial. This sand-colored building made out of granite was built in the 1850s and nobody ever escaped from this six-cell jail. It was in use for over 150 years. Today, it's a museum. Several surprised visitors have encountered Tiburcio Vasquez's spirit. He's seen strolling nonchalantly along the corridor, twirling a six-shooter in his hand. Witnesses have said that he smiled at them and then politely demanded they give him their money and their watches. Some said that when they refused, he aimed his weapon at them and then evaporated into thin air. Others said when they attempted to give him their money, he just vanished. So, as you might imagine, as is the case with a lot of outlaws, Vasquez's fame only grew after his death. Stories about Vasquez were featured in numerous books, magazine articles, and newspapers. Mexican bards sang songs about his exploits, and he took his place among other outlaw folk heroes such as Joaquin Murrieta, another inspiration for Zorro, in case you were wondering. And the differences of opinion regarding his legacy persist to this very day. Was he an opportunist who manipulated the grievances of native Californios to further his own criminal gains, or a Robin Hood-type defender of the oppressed? Was he a thief and murderer who got what he deserved when he was hanged? Or was he a heroic symbol of resistance who refused to submit to the American conquest of California? Maybe a little bit of both. Even today, it depends heavily on who you ask. In 2013, a school district in California caused a great deal of controversy when they named an elementary school after Vasquez. Some thought, why name an elementary school after a criminal who was executed for murder? And it is a fair point. But I'm not here to discuss politics or semantics, so let's talk about another intriguing ghost story connected to Tiburcio Vasquez. Unfortunately for you, though, it's not about his ghost, but about two of his victims' spirits. So more than 50 years after Vasquez used the foothills around Los Angeles as a hideout, a young actress in the early 1900s by the name of Bessie Love bought a bungalow in Laurel Canyon. And uh, Bessie Love, it's my understanding that she was a silent film star, which was my favorite era of Hollywood when the actors and actresses weren't allowed to speak. <laughs> In 1918, when she moved in, she was warned that this place was haunted. Not believing in ghosts, she ignored the warning, but as it turned out, her bungalow sat on the very spot where Vasquez had shot and killed two unfortunate gold hunters. Uh, let me explain what, what that means if you're not putting it together. So it was known that Tiburcio Vasquez had stolen quite a bit of gold in his long career, so many men searched his hideouts in the hills in hopes of finding his ill-gotten wealth. Unfortunately for these fuckers, two such men ran into Vasquez as they were searching for his hidey holes. Their ghosts are said to haunt this spot even today. So Bessie Love immediately noticed odd happenings in her new home. She heard a low moaning sound, and the doors opened and shut on their own. One electrical problem after another plagued her home. At first, of course, she tried to ignore this activity, but then things became worse. 
She began hearing men's voices when she was alone, and there was a pronounced cold spot in her living room. In the spring of 1923, a good friend of hers came to stay at her house. The two made up the sofa for the friend to sleep on, but during the night, her friend rushed into her bedroom screaming. She had awoken to the sounds of a man's voice, and when she looked around, she spotted a ghost walking through one of the living room's walls. She described how the ghost had paused, taken off what appeared to be a cowboy hat, and then, not noticing her, had walked past the sofa and into the kitchen. For the rest of the night, the two women were afraid to go back to sleep. It had been five years since love had moved in, but this was the last straw for her. She packed her shit, and she fucked off. In the following years, the bungalow remained unoccupied until a family bought the house intending to renovate the building. But they mysteriously moved out, leaving the work they started unfinished. In the early 1990s, an electrician who worked at one of the film studios moved in. He and his roommate were perplexed when the bungalow's front door, which had an old heavy-duty lock that both men had found very hard to close, started to close and lock by itself as they worked in the yard. The last time this door shut and locked, the deadbolt inside slid into place as well. The two men also felt a distinct cold spot in the living room, and several things happened with the electricity that even the electrician by trade could not figure out. They came to believe that the ghosts were letting them know that they didn't want anybody else living in the house. Very spooky. So, as we draw the curtain on this thrilling episode, I want to leave you with a haunting reminder. The Halloween special may be coming to a close, but it's not over just yet. Keep checking back throughout the day for more spine-tingling and spooky tales. There are also more surprises in store, and the eerie journey continues. Thank you very much for being part of our Halloween special, and may your nights be filled with the echoes of our story. Stay tuned. And keep checking back today for more captivating narratives on the Anthology of Horror podcast. Stay spooky, and I'll talk to you soon. Born under South Kentucky sky Here come West Mexico to fight 1842 at Mir Gutters filled with blood and fear Barely made it back to Texas alive with Missouri volunteers when the war began In 46 they crossed the Rio Grande There he met his dark-eyed love Said goodbye when the war was done Swore that he'd come back for her again But we'll take God's left us. We'll leave California with the dawn Worked his way back to home, Mexico Claimed the love it left two years ago Back to those same city walls Where he'd watch copper cannonballs Like wayward suns roll down the cobblestones 
Put him in prison, left alone With other Yankee fools so far from home Parade them through the square in chains Till in robe Captain Clinton's gang Patchy scalps for bounties paid God has left us We'll leave California with 